Welcome to Innovation Hub. I'm Kara Miller. This hour, you're going to hear a story you kind of know, the story of an impossible moment. Literally inconceivable. It was a moment that lasted for months, and for millions of Americans, it lasted more than a year. And I would have thought it would have been a disaster. Whether or not it was a disaster, it was so disruptive, it may very well reshape the future. And we're talking about a future no one could have imagined in the beginning. We saw a lot of families, parents, teachers, just trying to make sense of it. How do they shift to this hybrid distance learning thing? And so, and there was a bit of a leadership vacuum. That's Sal Khan. He's the founder and CEO of Khan Academy, an online learning site, remembering that strange time back in the spring of 2020 that schools shut down in America. Before that, you heard from Paul Revel, he's the former Secretary of Education in Massachusetts, and Pedro Nogueira, the dean of the Rossier School of Education at the University of Southern California. The moment seemed temporary, but as we'll discuss this hour, it may change education in America for a generation. And that could be true for both rich and poor, for those who are underserved, and for those who are resourced to the hilt. We had many millions of students, three million students, who didn't even show up this school year, who weren't present at all. That's on the one hand, says former U.S. Secretary of Education Margaret Spellings, but there's always another hand. The family had on its own gone ahead, obviously a a family with a lot of social and economic capital, and arranged a a relationship between an 11-year-old and a college-level research scientist doing archaeological work, and that the child and and the professor having once a week meetings and discussions. I really enjoyed getting to join in like the higher levels of math because in Connections, I was able to move up to ninth grade math and then move up to honors ninth grade math. So this hour, a look at how a year plus of huge disruptions to education could change school in kind of surprising ways with the voices of kids, parents, experts. First, Pedro Nogueira the dean of the School of Education at the University of Southern California, in conversation with Paul Revel at Harvard. Noguera says, when you step back just for a second and you examine what we saw, it was a terribly uneven picture. You know, there, there are families that liked it. They had kids who were stressed out by school. They were introverts. They actually did better online than they were doing in school. I was just uh, really surprised to see a poll recently showing black parents in California preferred online instruction um, in very high numbers compared to their in-school experience. And that's something I think we need to explore further. But then there were lots of kids. I mean, I think about the parents who were working and who had to try to monitor their kids, especially small kids. You know, imagine five-year-olds trying to do Zoom school what a struggle it was. And then there the academic difficulties for kids with special needs. So it, it's really been very uneven. And um, while, again, I want to applaud the effort to get kids connected, and I do think uh, in many ways online learning is here to stay. Hmm. And we're going to continue to see this as a part of both K-12 and higher ed. We also need to be very aware of the inequities that were exposed and how we're going to address that. Um, Paul, uh, when I talked with you back in the fall of 2020, you said 
that many large urban school districts had really struggled to serve kids during the pandemic. You compared those districts to a traumatized patient uh, or like somebody coming out from under an earthquake. It's been several months now. We've seen the year end. How did those urban districts do? Well, again, it's a highly variable kind of performance. I mean, some were able to return substantially in the spring just past and um, have kind of gotten over the hump of getting young people accustomed to being back in school. Others are still struggling with the effective utilization of the technology, with how to keep track of students who've really gone off the grid altogether and they haven't been able to contact with them or engage with them. And so a lot of work has got to go into restoring relationships, reconnecting students, even if they've been a little bit in school during this last quarter. How do we get them re-motivated, re-engaged, connected with each other, connected with their teachers, feeling that they're known, seen, cared about and responded to? inside of schools. This will be a big challenge. And I'm a little alarmed in some instances where we have a tremendous rush to make up for learning loss as though this were a purely technical problem. And I think we need to spend more time and attention to the social and emotional uh, dimensions of restoring relationships and connectivity. Well, and some of that is relationships that never began. I mean, there were kids, let's say, who were sent home at the end of second grade. Well, they, they didn't meet their third grade teacher for I don't know, most of the year, right? It, it was never a relationship. They, they you know, kind of knew them over the computer, but they never really in person got to, got to establish that relationship. Well, and some of it, uh, even worse, never existed in the first place. If we look at some of our middle schools and secondary schools, large numbers of students going through, seeing teachers only for 45 or 50 minutes mm-hmm. per section. We've got too many students going through those kinds of schools anonymously, not known, cared about, understood by anybody. And so the schools really weren't built to optimize relationships. We have student-teacher ratios that run 1 to 150 or 200. We have student-guidance counselor ratios that run, you know, 1 to 400 or 500. So um, restoring relationships is difficult if relationships didn't even exist in the first place. But now we've got to pay attention to it. And I think this has something to do with Yeah, making a big effort to personalize education, to meet children where they are and give them what they need. Because each of them has had such a different experience in the pandemic, we need to um, respond to them as a school system in a way that takes into account, as a medical system would, who they are, what their experience is, what are their assets, what are their needs, how can we help? Um, Pedro Nogueira, let's talk about L.A. a little bit. Back in May, the the L.A. Times had a kind of stunning headline uh, when it reported that only about 7 percent of high school students in the L.A. Unified School District had returned to campus. So 14 months after kids got sent home, 7 percent had come back um, in high school. What happened? And just give me a sense of like why so few people returned. So I, I think it goes to some of what Paul spoke about, about the fractured relationships. Uh, it was ironic because there was all this pressure, political pressure to reopen schools, as if reopening schools was like turning on the light switch and suddenly right. kids would appear and, and that you didn't have to do the work of re-engaging families. What we haven't t- discussed so far is the large numbers of kids that were lost entirely, who did not participate, who moved, because uh, their family lost housing. We don't even know where they are in many cases. L.A. experienced a lot of that. 
And I hope that one of the real lessons to come out of this is that we need that partnership with our parents and it has to be rooted in trust and has to be rooted in an understanding of what the needs of the families we serve are. You talked about there being uh, lost kids. Um, can you give me a sense? I think everybody's heard a little bit about that, seen articles about it. Is this an issue of a few people at the margins? Like, what can you just give me a sense of this issue and how big it is? You know, there, there was one estimate uh, in L.A., again, that, that 30% of kids could not participate in virtual learning. That's a lot of kids. That's a lot of families. That is a lot. And, that's uh, not like 3%, 30%. 30%. I mean, that's, yeah, it's a lot. And, and when you consider that many people living in overcrowded housing where they don't have good connections, we have too many people trying to get online at once. Uh, all of us have experienced this problem in our own homes. Imagine, again, little kids trying to get online on a cell phone to do their lessons. Um, this is the, you know, there are people going to McDonald's to try to get their work done. We should not glamorize uh, what occurred. It, this, was, this was hard for many people, and we're going to see the effects of it for years to come. And they're going to McDonald's for the free Wi-Fi, For right? the free Wi-Fi, that is. Yeah. Thank you for yeah. clarifying. No, no problem. It, um, it, I, just, I just want to draw this out one step more, which is, okay, so if you, you've got a lot of people who are lost or who kind of essentially, it sounds like, missed this year, so then what does that mean? If the kindergartner who basically missed this year, the sixth grader who basically missed this year, shows up next year, what does a missed year mean for them? Uh, you know, I think what Paul said is, is again, I, I agree with, we got we to gotta meet them where they are. We got to understand what are the needs, the academic needs, where are the gaps in learning, but also what are the other needs? And, and really try to personalize this experience for kids rather than assume the age of a child determines where they should be, because that, that's going to be meaningless for a lot of uh, children out there. Um, Pedro, uh, we saw different states. It's, it, in some ways, it's hard to have a national conversation about this, um, even though it's so important, because different states made such different choices in terms of education over the last year. So I would say in general, but this is very general, states in the South and in the Midwest and in the Mountain West, um, kids were more likely to have spent the 2020-2021 academic year in in-person classes. States in the East and the West and in many big cities didn't as much. Um, we saw different countries make different choices, like many European and Asian countries had mostly in-person school, but with some pauses and stuff. What did you think of the kind of just enormous variation, which, as I said, in some ways makes it hard to have a national conversation because people have completely different realities that they've lived through over the last year? Well, you know, from a research standpoint, it makes it really interesting because then you could you can study, you know, what were the effects? Um, you know, Rhode Island, for example, had kids in person instruction very early, right next to Massachusetts, which did it. How did kids in Rhode Island fare? Did that were they better off than kids, similar kids in other states? So I, I think those are important questions so that that allow us to learn from this experience. What concerned me about uh, some of the recovery aid it's a lot of money coming in quickly, and um, there are a lot of superintendents, I think, who aren't clear, and they're not getting good guidance on what to prioritize 
and um, how to address the many different needs that were exposed. So money is always part of the solution, but it's never the only solution. Uh, you need to know what to do with that money and you need to know how to use it to have the best impact. Paul, I think maybe a, a year ago or so, um, you made this prediction and, and I talked to you about it a few months ago and I wanna follow up and you said, Part of the reason that the pandemic could remake public education is because even if a small slice of kids leave, let's just say a bunch of wealthy kids say, we're out, we're going to private school, we're going to parochial school, we're joining pods, whatever it is, um, they can reshape the marketplace for everybody else. And I wonder, now that you've seen things unfold, do you think that happened? I don't think it's happened in terms of um, a, a total reshaping of the marketplace. I think okay. that, that new options and opportunities and ways of proceeding to educate one's children have emerged. I just had dinner last night with a with a family, and the family had on its own gone ahead, obviously a, a family with a lot of social and economic capital, and arranged uh, a relationship between an 11-year-old and a a college-level research scientist doing archaeological work, and that the child and the and the professor having once a week meetings and discussions. Wow. Um, so people have fended for themselves. There's been a bit of a homeschooling flavor to a lot of it. Now, some of it I think has been disillusioning in the field. You know, there was a lot of hoopla about pandemic pods for a while. And many of these coming together and groups of parents making the best in a difficult situation. And they had resources and they were hiring teachers and and uh, setting up their own curriculum. And, uh, but a lot of that wore thin after a while. There were problems and, and challenges. It was, in effect, running their own small school and doing it voluntarily at one person's house as opposed to another. And I, I think a lot of parents, in my experience, have worn thin on that. Uh, but on the other hand, a lot of parents have decided and children have decided, you know, I can get a lot off the Internet. I can do a lot of self-guided work in education. I can do my Russian math over here. I can do uh, various kinds of recreational gaming activities over there. I can fill up a day in a very sort of stimulating and enriching way without necessarily being in school for seven hours or six hours or what it might be. And my guess is that a lot of families are going to want to persist in taking advantage of those kinds of options, uh, all the way to the option that uh, uh, we talked a little bit about earlier, which is some families are now saying, uh, we don't want to come back at all. And we want the school system to figure out a way to service us remotely. And so some of our larger school systems are now establishing internal distance learning schools where everybody, teachers and students, will be working remotely in order to meet the market of people who are saying, and, and Pedro alluded to, a lot of um, uh, Black and Latinx and uh, Asian parents in particular, some parents of students with uh, special uh, learning circumstances, uh, some English language learners preferred to learn online. And I think there's going to be a demand for that. School systems are going to have to respond. And we now have a number of states coming out with sort of uh, relatively arbitrary policy pronouncements that there'll be no online learning. There'll be no option mm -hmm. to learn from home. I think that's going to break down. I think they're going to have to make waivers. I think they're going to have to open it up and make it possible uh, for those who have thrived learning remotely to do at least some of their education in that modality. Hmm. 
Let's pause the conversation here for just a minute. We're going to come back and talk more about how the marketplace for education may have been fundamentally changed by its main consumers, who are kids, who is stepping away from the traditional school, and how is that going to change the schools that they leave? That part of the story in just a minute. If you want to hear Innovation Hub and our conversations every single week, you can head to Apple Podcasts or wherever you get your podcasts, and you can subscribe to the show. From GBH Radio and PRX, I'm Kara Miller. This is Innovation Hub. Welcome back to Innovation Hub. I'm Kara Miller. In March of 2020, more than 50 million kids were sent home from public school in the U.S. A year and a half later, September of 2021, not everybody's going to go back to classrooms. From Minnesota to Maine to Mississippi, enrollment figures have dipped substantially in a way that might reshape education because it matters who's in class and who isn't. Innovation Hub senior producer Elizabeth Ross tells the story of three different families who quit traditional school for good this past year, and they are pursuing alternative education models. Their stories are lessons for anyone seeking to reimagine the future of education. Kate Whittigan's nine-year-old son, Weston, always used to struggle with school. You know, he had had some disruptive behavior, and he, more than anything, it was breaking my heart because I would be taking him to school and he would be crying, refusing to get out of the vehicle to go to school. When his charter school closed down in March last year because of the pandemic, his second grade class went virtual and things went from bad to worse. And it was a little bit like pulling teeth. It was not an enjoyable experience for either one of us. And I started to see my son, who already was saying he didn't like school, completely hate the education experience. And it broke my heart because I love learning. Whittigan, who lives in Flagstaff, Arizona, stayed home with Weston and tried to help him navigate his pre-recorded videos, worksheets and lessons to no avail. Helping him with these online classes in an elementary school setting was just not going to work. At the end of his second year during the pandemic, he said, Mommy, I will not go on another Zoom call again. (laughs) And really, can we blame him? Whittigan knew she desperately needed to do something different. And last year, with the help of an Arizona-based company called Prenda, she set up a micro-school in her home for her son and a small group of students in grades three through five. So our goal with, with online tools and using the technology is to be able to really build around an experience that will empower a kid as a learner. That's company founder and CEO Kelly Smith. He says with Prenda's microschool model, students learn at their own pace and there's a focus on project-based and small group learning. We want them to be right at their learning frontier. And that's, as any teacher will tell you, very hard to do when you have a full classroom and and you can only have uh, one string of words coming out of your mouth at a time. Smith, an MIT grad, set up his first microschool in his house for one of his own kids and some of his friend's children back in January 2018. He says during the pandemic, enrollment multiplied by four times, and the company now supports over 400 microschools. Prenda partners with traditional schools and districts in a number of states to provide mostly tuition-free education. 
The company has statewide programs in Colorado and Arizona, where its funding model has reportedly drawn scrutiny from the Attorney General's office. And starting this fall, the New Hampshire Department of Education will partner with Prenda to provide learning pods in multi-age small group settings to help up to 500 students. The idea of learning pods, the idea of microschools, uh, was not new to the pandemic. New Hampshire's Commissioner of Education, Frank Edelblu, is convinced the microschool model will continue to thrive and help close student achievement gaps that persisted even before COVID. And that disparity gap is one that we also know is most harmful to some of our most disadvantaged students, our economically disadvantaged students, our English learning students, and some of our minority students. As for Kate Whittigan, she made an important discovery about her son through her microschool. Turns out Weston had been frustrated by knowledge gaps dating all the way back to kindergarten, when he'd been ill and missed some school. She was able to fill those gaps, and he's now at grade level in all subjects. Besides microschools, another learning model that has mushroomed during the pandemic is homeschooling. According to the U.S. Census Bureau, the number of homeschooling households doubled from spring to fall last year, and there was a five-fold increase for black families. On his wall, we have the states, we have timetables, we kind of decorate it as a learning environment for him so he doesn't feel like... Angela Valentine belongs to one of those families. Over Zoom, she shows me the learning space that she and her husband set up for their son Dorian in their home in a northwest suburb of Chicago. We have a separate area that's built just for Zooming and for distance learning. Um, Valentine says her 12-year-old son had already struggled with some challenges at his local public school before COVID. My son was uh, most times, I I could say 90% of the time, the only African-American in the classroom. So with that, it wasn't an issue, but I, I felt like at some point he began to feel different. And as he began to get older, especially in those tween years, there were some things that, you know, you always have the, the bullying and the things like that. And it, was, it wasn't anything just intensive like that. But I, I started to see some him being treated just a little bit differently. Then last fall, Valentine opted for a fully remote sixth grade year for Dorian. Her son was suddenly in a class where he didn't know anyone. He had a brand new teacher and Valentine says he felt isolated. He would um, say here in the morning when they're taking attendance and then rarely ever anything else throughout the day. And he had to sit there from, you know, 830, then take a lunch break and then come back and finish out the school day till 330. And I just I, I just saw the light in him just dimming because he wasn't engaged. And I said, you know, this this can't be working. The last straw came a few months later when Dorian received unusually low grades because he hadn't submitted his online work properly. Valentine says that's when she decided to homeschool him. As a digital learning and innovation consultant who works from home, she knew she could do it, especially with help from resources like the National Black Home Educators. But Valentine says as we emerge from the pandemic, she hopes schools will work harder to build better relationships and trust with all families. Because one of the things that I felt like, I, d- I didn't feel equipped as a parent 
when I would see things on my end or when there was a homework assignment or a discussion with a teacher saying, oh, we need to work on this. We need to work on that. Okay, I took that to heart, but I felt um, somewhat ill-equipped to really deal with it. So I, I think there just needs to be a little bit more partnership between the educators and the parents so we can work together as a community because we have to save these kids. She has her special workplace, which I'm sitting right now. <laughs> and she has a comfortable bed. She has her bookshelves and she has her table, which... You... Last fall, when some parents around the country were snapping up last-minute back-to-school supplies for their kids, Ksenia Koklova was busy trying to find comfortable office furniture for her oldest daughter's bedroom. That was kind of interesting shopping in the beginning of of the school year last fall because all parents, they shopped for comfortable offices for their, for their kids. Christina Koklova's seventh grade class in the Issaquah Public School District in Washington State was starting fully remote. But up in her office bedroom, Christina wasn't connecting with that class. Personally for me, my education experience with the public school online wasn't very good because, well, public school wasn't used to teaching online. Much like Dorian and Weston, Christina's experience with distance learning thrown together by her public school was a bust. So she turned to Connections Academy, which provides online public schools tuition-free for K-12 students nationwide. It's been around for 20 years, but it saw enrollment increase by over 40% last year when a flurry of kids started to seek experienced online education, including Christina, a straight-A student hungry for advanced math. I really enjoyed getting to join in like the higher levels of math because in Connections I was able to move up to ninth grade math and then move up to honors ninth grade math, which uh, is much more challenging and much more interesting for me personally. Christina has thrived with virtual learning and she plans to continue with Connections Academy at least through the end of middle school next year. She says you can't beat waking up whenever you want and she doesn't miss spending up to an hour and a half travelling on the school bus every day. But when it comes to remote instruction in traditional public schools, a recently published survey of educators by the RAND Corporation found some apparent contradictions. Relatively high demand for it but some alarming statistics about standards. RAND senior policy researcher Heather Schwartz says figuring out what quality remote learning looks like at scale, well... I think that's going to be the challenge of our generation so that we don't further create separate and unequal schooling systems uh, or exacerbate separate and unequal schooling systems. For Innovation Hub, I'm Elizabeth Ross. I want to come back now to my conversation with Paul Revel. He's the former Secretary of Education in Massachusetts, now at the Harvard Graduate School of Education, and Pedro Nagara, who's the Dean of the Rossier School of Education at USC. We've been talking about how the past year could become a generational pivot for public school in America. And Nagara told me one issue that he's worried about right now are the many kids opting to go fully virtual, even though he knows, as you just heard, there is real demand for it. 
School is not just about the academic learning. It's about the social and the emotional learning. It's about uh, understanding your place in society. It's about uh, learning to get along with others. I worry about the long-term consequences. Um, uh, that there are many kids who are just online too long. You know, they're in school and then they're out playing video games after school. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And it's not good for their eyes. It's not good for lots of things. So uh, there are things that we should be concerned about as well with respect to uh, long-term implications. Paul, when you hear from parents about this paradigm shift, essentially, of meeting people where they are, personalizing things for kids, is that really going to happen? It just feels like this is such a big ship to turn around. Well, it's a huge ship to, to turn around, and maybe uh, calling it a paradigm shift, although I think that's an accurate description, uh, might overweight it at this moment where people who run school systems are justifiably exhausted and uh, yeah. just trying to find their way to solve the logistical problems and so forth of getting people back into school. But I do think that we've learned some ways and means of moving in the direction of personalizing our system. In other words, we have a factory model system of education that was developed in the early 20th century to batch process mass produce education. And we've refined it a little bit, but it's still basically the same logic. And that logic is one size fits all, teach to the middle, get through as best you can with the average. It's very different than, for example, what you do in business, you'd niche market to a particular customer. Or in medicine, you'd have a case management approach where you take into account what are the strengths and needs of a particular patient and what sorts of treatments are needed and how do we apply them and follow progress and bring that person to a level of health. So some school systems, for example, um, Nashville, uh, they have 26,000 students. They've assigned a navigator to every student within the school system. So each student has an adult who's an advocate, who knows the family, who knows the individual. They've done a profile of what that child needs, and they built a system to begin to move forward and start thinking in that way. Mm -hmm. Is this person, is this navigator a teacher or are they a volunteer? It could be a teacher, it could be an okay. administrator, but they found okay. a way to do it for all the children. So I think, yes, it's a major shift in, in philosophy and operations, and those are not insignificant, but I think there are ways and means of getting there. And we see some signs that indicate that as a result of the pandemic, people have had to embrace some of these methods earlier than expected, and uh, they're making some good progress. Um, Pedro, uh, one of the big questions I have, um, and I, I read a little bit about this, is about teachers and recruitment. Uh, teaching was already stressful. Teaching to, you know, a bunch of black boxes on Zoom when people have cameras turned off, boy, that's even more stressful because I've taught and like you feed off the energy that's coming back to you. And if nothing's coming back to you, that's it's like a comedian. It's like the audience is, you know, in the dark and you can't see them at all. Um, I wonder if you worry about, you know, that maybe people at the near the end of their careers were like, whatever, I'm taking early retirement. Other people were discouraged by teaching on Zoom and that kind of lack of interaction. What do you see with the, the teacher pipeline? You're raising really important question because in the same way as we need to think about how to make schools more responsive to, to kids, mm. we have to make them better places to work in too. 
Um, and, you know, we've taken for granted that uh, we'll always have a supply of teachers out there. And, and again, we had major issues around pay and benefits, in, especially in certain states. And the job has become less and less attractive to a lot of people. You know, when I became a teacher over 30 years ago in Providence, Rhode Island, I was drawn by the ability to make a difference, to have an impact on kids. And I think that's what attracts people to the work in the first place. And we need to make sure that we are attracting people and, 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 and providing them with support so they can, in fact, experience that sense of accomplishment, that we need to give them the support so they can also see teaching as creative work, where they have the ability to grow intellectually and professionally. And I, I'm concerned that if we don't put the effort into this, uh, we could find many districts that'll have trouble attracting a new group of teachers to work in our schools. So if we have this conversation again in five years and we say, you know, when we look back at the, at the pandemic, this is the thing. This is the thing that stuck, that changed things, that now I can really identify this part of education as having started during the pandemic or been affected by the pandemic. Paul, what's that thing? I'm not sure it's a silver bullet, Kara. I mean, I think it's mm. I think it's doing better in a bunch of categories. I think we'd have universal, high quality early childhood education, and we will have used some of the funds uh, that are coming from the federal government to get there. I think we we'd have an entitlement for every child to have high quality after school and summer learning and enrichment kinds of opportunities. I think we do a much better job on nutrition and health care for our students. I think we will have given our teachers enough you know, investment over the next few years in professional development to not only use technology better, but to do some of the things in deeper learning that we talked about earlier. Uh, I think we will have personalized education to the um, laments of some of those parents. We will have set up ways and means that teachers and guidance counselors and other connective kind of people come together with families to make joint common cause for um, improving children's well-being and school success. So I think we'll see it in, I hope we'll see it in a variety of different categories of our endeavor rather than in one particular area. Pedro, I'll finish with you. Kind of same question, but are there going to be ways, Paul gave a very positive view of how things may change coming out of this. Are there people whose lives are going to be forever affected by what happened this year, kids? Yeah, and we're already seeing signs of that. The ones who are not flocking back to schools and who are considering alternatives, um, the homeschooling alternatives. I think to the question you posed to Paul, I would say, we'll either say, look, this period of disruption served as an opportunity to create a new system that was better than the one we had, that was more responsive, and schools that were more engaging than we'd known before. Or we say, what a wasted opportunity. We had a moment where we could have actually changed things, and we went right back to the same flawed system that we had before, and we missed it. You know, I think about so many people have used the pandemic as a chance to re-examine their own lives and their own priorities and how they spend their time and how they eat. And, and I think about people who haven't. In many ways, our schools are like that too. They're institutions that, that do reflect 
our society do reflect our values, but we have to use them and shape them to um, create what we hope to be the best in what we can be as a nation. And um, so I'll, I'll leave on the hope that, that that is still very much a possibility. Pedro Nogueira is Dean of the University of Southern California Rossier School of Education, and Paul Revel is a professor at the Harvard Graduate School of Education. He previously served as the Massachusetts Secretary of Education. Thanks again so much to both of you. I'm glad we could get the gang together again. Thank you, Kara. Thanks, Kara. Thanks, Thanks for coming back. Next, another pair of voices look to the future of education. Sal Khan, the founder of Khan Academy, and Margaret Spellings, the former U.S. Secretary of Education. From PRX and GBH Radio, I'm Kara Miller. This is Innovation Hub. We're going to be right back. Welcome back to Innovation Hub. I'm Kara Miller. When it comes to how the pandemic has changed education, consider this scenario. Over the course of the last year, year and a half, if you and I are both seventh graders and you are able to keep learning and you are able to master your negative numbers and your exponents and your and the logarithms and the basic algebra, the things that you would typically do in, in seventh grade, while I, for some reason, have checked out, I've been struggling, The system needs a way for me to re-engage. Sal Khan is the CEO and founder of Khan Academy, which is an online learning platform where you can learn some algebra or calculus or what a noun is. He has been tapped by lots of school districts to figure out how technology can become a game changer in schools and how it can stop millions of kids from losing their footing during more than a year of disruption. Even before the pandemic, though, he says, 70% of community college students needed remedial math. So, yeah, education may have been pushed to the breaking point during the pandemic, but it wasn't doing that great beforehand. If the system doesn't do that and we just only do the lockstep learning going forward and lockstep learning on top of weak foundations, those 70% of kids who have to get remediation when they go to college, you're going to see those numbers get even larger. And... And that's not just a problem of remediation. There's huge amounts of data that show that that is the biggest predictor of students not graduating college or not graduating college while having debt, which has all sorts of negative predictors for for later on in life. Margaret Spellings, who served as the Secretary of Education in the George W. Bush administration, says if gaps are not closed, the implications are going to reshape the country for decades five to nine months behind in math, you know, six to 11 months for low-income students, uh, about the same for reading. We had many millions of students, three million students, who didn't even show up this school year, who weren't present at all. So uh, we've lost ground. And this will, uh, you know, have consequences long beyond the pandemic if we don't, you know, pull up and triage and really have a sense of urgency around attending to the needs of our students, all of them. Both Kahn and Spellings think that this past year could prompt big changes in education. 
and we're going to come back to Khan a little later on. But Spelling's worries that across the country, the pandemic is also going to bring about a different sort of generational shift, a move away from testing. I used to say if, you know, half the school lunches served in our cafeterias were tainted and people were getting food poisoning, people would be completely up in arms. But the fact that, you know, large, large numbers of our students can't read or or cipher uh, at grade level, which predicts a pretty dim future, not only for them, but for our country, we have not attended to with the kind of urgency I believe we need. And, you know, if there's a, a hard lesson or a silver lining, whatever you want to call it, in COVID, maybe people will, will see the implications of this. It's been starkly revealed and attend and triage and have a sense of urgency around it. Um, let's talk a little bit about geographical differences during the pandemic. If somebody's listening to this and they're sitting in Chicago or they're sitting in New York or San Francisco, how do you think Texas, because we've had a lot of sort of little microcosms going on all over the country uh, during the pandemic, and I think people were not necessarily aware of what other people were doing. How do you think Texas responded differently to, let's say, school closures or other educational issues differently than, than other places? Well, Texas, like a lot of red states, we were pretty bullish on opening as quickly as possible. And I think kids were back in school. I know my own local school district, we went back, you know, pretty, pretty early. Students in private schools in particular, where many of our most advantaged students attend, uh, they were back right away. Yeah, I mean, I think there's been a lot of uh, variance around the country as to who went back and where and and what the conditions were, and even the kind of student that did and didn't attend. And when you talk about uh, schools going back pretty early, are you saying like, you know, September 2020, you feel like a lot of schools in Texas were back? Absolutely. Okay. Absolutely. I mean, I think the, you know, spring of last year was pretty much a wash and people closed down and state closed down. And then, you know, red states in particular uh, started the school pretty close to, uh, you know, those September start dates. Um, obviously, we've seen in the past several years a lot of controversy over testing and teaching to the test. Um, the other argument, of course, is like this is a way to assess where kids are with math skills or language skills. Um, now coming out of m- well more than a year of disruption, what do you think the role of assessment and testing is, and I wonder if it has a different role now because of this incredible dislocation over time. Well, this is something that I'm I'm really very concerned about, and so most states, including Texas, have you know put a pause on school ratings, uh, certainly for this academic year. And sadly, our legislature just put a pause through next school year. So parents will not understand, policymakers will not understand where their schools are until the summer of 2023. I'm a little bit worried about the baby going out with the bathwater here on a policy approach that has held over the last, you know, 30 years with bipartisan support around the country, which is standards, measurement, accountability, transparency, and guess what? It has helped close the achievement gap and and inure to the great benefit of low-income students. Do you uh, think that this actually could be a moment where, and this has been in, in the ether, no question about it, in some places, like that this is a moment where tests could permanently go out the window, where people say, you know, look, this one-year pause, this two-year pause, it makes sense indefinitely. Let's just pause this thing, this test. 
And, you know, we, tr- we tried that approach for, for many, many, many decades. And, you know, that's what beget the, the Nation at Risk report, where we had just these massive gaps of people who were advantaged and doing well, and people who were highly disadvantaged. And this is, and this is the Reagan administration? Resor- the Nation this at is risk? in the okay. Reagan administration. Okay. And so that's kind of what started the whole, you know, standards and accountability and transparency movement that has been built on and served us for the last, let's say, you know, three or four decades but, but yes, I'm worried about it, very worried about it. And, you know, we're, we're all talking a lot about, uh, you know, wage gaps and income gaps and disparities. You know, this is the, the bedrock issue is how well we educate our students and if we're going to resource the problem, if we're going to understand the problem or the issue and the implications. And uh, we have a real fork, fork in the road. Um, apart from the issue of testing, which, as you said, could be maybe there's a permanent change there. What do you see as the potential long-term effects of the disruption of the pandemic on kids' um, lives and their ability to get jobs in, I mean, increasingly a very competitive uh, global workforce? You know, we don't know yet. And and I think we have to understand the criticality of this moment and, and really, you know, triage the situation. You know, when we look at things, the only there's not a lot of equivalence to this pandemic, clearly, that we might compare ourselves to. But uh, some quote, some research in, in Argentina where there was a, a year long school shutdown and that that paid bad consequences for the country and for the citizens, you know, for many, many decades. And we're starting to see that kind of research emerge from around the country about real declines in lifetime wages and, and so forth. And of course, you know, the prosperity of our of our states and country. But we don't know yet. Yeah. But here here's what I want people to, to understand is we know what to do. We can close these gaps. We're gonna have to spend more time, more money, more time on task, intervene, 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 triage. And that means summer school. That means means intensive tutoring. That means, you know, accelerating learning. And we can do it. We know what to do. We just have to do it at scale. Hmm. Um, your nonprofit, um, uh, Texas 2036, has uh, brought together a lot of data on different policy areas, and it includes education. Um, it, when you think about some of the unique challenges that Texas faces moving forward, um, in terms of education, what are they? Well, for starters, and this, of course, is a you know t- Texas is on the leading edge, the bleeding edge of some of these trends. But you know, we're we're a big state, we're a growing state. We are getting more diverse every year. We're twenty nine million people today, going to forty million in the next fifteen years or so. We are getting simultaneously younger and more diverse and older. We're living longer uh, and so forth. And all the implications of that, you know, human capital is the number one asset. If we're a, you know, global knowledge economy, we have a great hand to play, but it will be predicted by how well we educate our students. Um, A final question for you. Um, The pandemic, though there's obviously tremendous downsides, it's also been this moment of a lot of experimentation. Things happened in education that hadn't happened before. People had to try things just because there was no other choice. Are there things that um, best practices, innovations that you think like, wow, that that's interesting. We should pursue that or we should stick with that. 
Absolutely. And and this is the, the half full side mm. of the laboratories of democracy, the, the U.S. model versus the Danish model, where we can try a lot of things and we can figure out what works. And, and I think technology, obviously, dramatic acceleration in the proliferation, the use of and the effectiveness uh, of these things. Small group learning, more personalization, pods, all those sorts of things. Yes, there, we have learned a good bit and, and we need to build on it and accelerate. So I'm optimistic about the, the days ahead, particularly since, you know, resources really are not going to be an issue because of these massive, massive investments that are coming from Washington into our schools. Margaret Spellings is the former U.S. Secretary of Education under President George W. Bush. She's former president of the University of North Carolina system, and she's currently president and CEO of the nonprofit Texas 2036. Margaret, thank you so much for being here. Thank you. And before we go here, let's come back for a minute to Sal Khan, the founder of Khan Academy, who we'll hear more from in a future show. But I asked him about Spellings' push for testing a push that certainly has not received universal acclaim. I do agree with Secretary Spellings that you've got to have some way to measure where you are to get better at things. That's just a true statement about life. And when you talk about standardized testing, you know, I ask people, you know, what part do you not like? Do you not like the standardized or do you not like the testing? I think you have to measure. And ideally, it's, it's better than unstandardized because then you really have no way of benchmarking where you are. Khan says there are some problems with testing, though, like when we don't use the information gleaned from the test or when we only measure the stuff that's easy to measure or when there's lots of time spent taking tests. Ideally, he argues, if you're doing some digital learning, the math, the reading comprehension you do anyway could be automatically part of assessment. So the big test isn't on, let's say, February 5th. Instead, progress is being gauged all the time little by little. We're going to have more from Sal Khan on an upcoming show, including why he's not too big on screens in his own life. You can subscribe to Innovation Hub on Apple Podcasts or wherever you get your podcasts. Thanks to the people who helped put together this show. Senior producer Elizabeth Ross, producer Mark Solinger, and associate producer Sarah Leeson. We also had production help from Abby Bagini. From PRX and GBH, I'm Kara Miller, and this is Innovation Hub.